Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Hi. In this segment of our History of Israel, we're really going to begin the conversation about what makes Israel look like it is today and the events that make the Middle East more or less look like they do today. And we're going to talk about the Six-Day War of 1967. Now, before we get to the Six-Day War, I want to quote you something that Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook, who is the son of the original Rabbi Cook, but Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook in 1967 is the really undisputed leader of the religious Zionist movement. And around Israel Independence Day of 1967, he tells his students, his Talmidim, as we call them in the yeshiva, he tells his Talmidim in the yeshiva why it was that he was unable to celebrate in 1948 when Israel was created. His father, the great Rabbi Cook, had already died at that time, uh, but he was very much already a person of renown, and he says he was unable to celebrate in 1948. And he tells his students in 1967, May of 1967, Israel Independence Day, why that was. And he says this, the whole nation, talking about 1948, flowed into the streets to celebrate its feelings of joy but I couldn't go out and, jo and join in the rejoicing. I sat alone and burdened. In those first hours, I couldn't make my peace with what had happened, with the terrible news that the word of God and the book of the prophets had not been fulfilled. They divided my land. Where is our Hebron? Have we forgotten it? Where is our Shechem, which is the Hebrew word for Nablus? Have we forgotten it? And where is Jericho? Have we forgotten it? And where is the other bank of the Jordan River? Where is every clot of earth, every piece of God's land? Do we have the right to cede even a centimeter of it? God forbid. In that state, talking again about 1948, my whole body was stunned, wounded, and severed into pieces. I couldn't celebrate. They divided my land. They divided the land of God. I couldn't go outside and rejoice. We're going to come back in a little while to why this speech is so important. In May 1948, nobody thought it was terribly important. It's just his students in his yeshiva listening to his brokenheartedness about the divided land. But we'll see very shortly why that is going to become such an important transformative speech. In the meanwhile, in the meantime, what's going on in the Middle East in general? Nasser is the president of Egypt, and he is building a movement called Pan-Arabism. And he says to the other Arab countries, this is not the time for Jordan to be in it for Jordan or Syria for Syria or Egypt for Egypt. It's time to build a pan-Arab movement. We have to all band together to restore Arab pride, to end European colonialism in general, and to end that most egregious example of colonialism, which of course is the Six-Day War. 
And in May 1967, right around the same time that Rabbi Cook is giving that speech to his students, Nasser declares, Brothers, it is our duty to prepare for the final battle in Palestine, i.e. that second round that they had long been talking about. Now, the Six-Day War, like the other wars that we're going to talk about, is a very, very complicated war. And we're not going to go into where is the first front and where is the second front and why does this happen and why does that happen. There are, of course, entire books written about the Six-Day War. But what we want to talk a little bit about is how does the war start, what happens at the end of the war, and how was Israel transformed by it? Uh, when I first moved to Israel in 1998, we were here for a couple of quiet years, and then the, first, the second Intifada, which lasted from 2000 to 2004, began in 2000. And I remember saying to one of my older colleagues at that point, who has unfortunately since passed away, in the middle of the second Intifada, when Israeli buses are blowing up and restaurants are blowing up, and it's a pretty bad time here in Israel, I said something to him like, this is pretty lousy. And he said to me, you weren't here in the period of the Hamtana, the waiting period. He goes, that was a lot worse. And that period of the Hamtana, the waiting period, is the term that's given to the three weeks before the 1967 war. It was very clear that war was going to break out. Egypt had poured some 75,000 soldiers and 500 tanks into the Sinai Desert. Uh, Syria was arming, Jordan was arming, everybody was basically getting together and making it very clear that between Pan-Arabism and trying to end the stain of colonialism in the Middle East, coupled with all of the various intelligence reports that Israel was getting about Arab arm movements and Arab soldier movements, it's very clear war is going to break out. Now, in the meantime, there is a UN peacekeeping force in the Sinai Desert, which is designed to keep the peace between Israel and the Egyptians. It's supposed to make sure that the Egyptians don't take back that Strait of Tehran, which we talked about when we spoke about the 1956 war. And it's basically a buffer between Israel and Egypt. Uh, and Nasser basically informs Yutan, the head of the UN, that he wants all of the UN troops out of the Sinai, and Yutan completely acquiesces and agrees. And he just pulls all of the United Nations peacekeeping forces right out of the Sinai Desert. It was at that moment that Israelis understood that they were on their own, that the UN would do nothing to defend them. It was at that moment that American Jews understood that Israel was on its own, that nobody was going to do anything to defend them. And two days later, exactly as the Israelis had feared, uh, Egypt closed the Straits of Tehran. And don't forget that the Americans and the French had agreed in 1956 that this was going to be a red line that Israel, that, that the, the Egyptians could not cross. Two days later, the Egyptians closed the Straits of Tehran, which had been agreed upon internationally that that was going to be a red line. The Americans had said in 1956, if you give back the Sinai, we'll make sure that Egypt never again closes the Straits of Tehran. And the French had said, don't worry, we've got your back. Egypt will not be allowed to close the Straits of Tehran. But now the UN peacekeeping forces are gone. The Straits of Tehran are closed. Israel has basically lost every single thing that it gained from the war in 1956. With war apparently ready to break out, there is a feverish round of diplomacy with Abba Iban, who was then very well known perhaps as the most articulate representative of Israel, both as an ambassador to the UN, an ambassador to America, 
Eban goes on a huge tour trying to get countries to support Israel. He goes to France, and de Gaulle, who's the president of France at that point, says Israel may not attack first. Israeli military experts felt that maybe if they attacked first and got a kind of a good step head up on the, on the war, they might be able to blunt some of the damage that the Arab armies would do. But de Gaulle makes it very clear, under no circumstances are you allowed to start the war and to attack first. And Eben says to him, but in 1956, you promised us that if they closed the Straits of Tehran, that would be an act of war. And de Gaulle just looked at him and said, well, 1956 is not 1967 basically reneging on his promise. Same thing more happened, in, more or less happened in England. The British were not interested at all in Israel attacking first. And then Abba Iban goes to America, meets with Johnson, who was then the president of uh, the United States. And Johnson also says, no attacking first. We're going to take care of you. We're going to put together a whole naval thing to protect you, but no attacking first. But the reality was, of course, that Johnson had no stomach for a war in the Middle East because LBJ had his hands full in Vietnam. Vietnam was the problem that Americans had in foreign policy, and they were just not willing to get their hands dirty in the Middle East. And Israel understands that it's on its own. The French are not going to defend it. The British are not going to defend it. The Americans are not going to defend it. And they are all telling Israel under no circumstances, can you strike first? And then in the meantime, David Ben-Gurion is no longer Prime Minister of Israel. He has retired. And he, the creator of Israel, the George Washington of Israel, so to speak, has been replaced at this stage by Levi Eshkol, thoroughly decent man, but with none of the charisma that David Ben-Gurion had. And Levi Eshkol decides to give a speech to the country about what's happening, about what's going to happen, and so forth. And he writes the speech up, and it's typed up for him, but then at the very last minute, he starts to make all kinds of edits in the speech and he writes all over the paper and some other people actually make edits for him. And then he's supposed to go on the air and it's time to go online and there's not enough time to retype the speech. So he's looking at a piece of paper that is typed but has scrawling all over it and he really can't read it. And he starts to stutter and stammer and gives a speech to national Israeli radio when it literally sounds like he doesn't know what he's talking about. And there are reports from people who were actually there then, the soldiers on their bases in 1967 simply began to cry. That the head of state literally had lost it. The days when we had a leader like David Ben-Gurion were completely over. But the war was growing closer. Jordan signs a defense pact with Egypt, Iraq, just like it had done in the 1948 war, even though it has no border with Israel, sent troops. Um, and Yitzhak Rabin, who was the man who was at the Palmach, he was the one who would help liberate Jerusalem in 1948. He was involved in the Al-Talena incident of the boat that the Etzel brought in that we talked about in a previous episode. Uh, he is now the chief of staff of the Israeli army, and under the pressure of what is building, he actually begins to fall apart. He is smoking 70 cigarettes a day and drinking copious amounts of coffee to everyone's great worry and consternation. And finally, he has a nervous breakdown. He's taken aside, he's given a day or two to rest, and he comes back. But when the chief of staff of the army has a nervous breakdown, uh, you know that you are in trouble. The Ramat Gan Stadium, which is one of Israel's big stadiums, is consecrated by the rabbis of Israel as a burial place for up to 40,000 people. 
Um, hospitals are emptied of all patients because the assumption was that they're going to be needed for soldiers and civilians who are going to get slaughtered in the onslaught. And Eshkol, recognizing that he has lost the confidence of the country entirely, creates a national unity government, meaning there's no parties in the government and parties who are in the opposition. We're all going to join together, no opposition right now, and there'll be people from all different parties in the cabinet. We're going to be in this together for a while. Moshe Dayan, who had given that very famous eulogy for Owi Rotberg a few years earlier, becomes defense minister. And Menachem Begin, who had been the one that Ben-Gurion was trying to kill back in the day, according to some people, and had been the head of the Etzel and so forth, enters the cabinet for the first time in his life. And his first suggestion is that they bring back David Ben-Gurion as prime minister of the state of Israel. Ben-Gurion actually is told that that's what Begin has suggested. He declines but he actually understands that Begin is not the person that he thought Begin was. And this is the beginning of the thawing of their very bitter relationship, which will become a somewhat better relationship in the years to come. There is a huge debate inside the leadership of Israel, both the civilian leadership and the military leadership about whether to strike first. The military leadership worries that if they don't strike first, they're going to be in big trouble militarily. The civilian leadership is obviously very aware that France, Britain, the United States have all said not to do it. But at the end of the day, the decision is left to the military brass. On June 5th, at 7.30 or so in the morning, there are some paratroopers in their bases in the south of Israel, and they see a dozen Israeli planes flying ridiculously low to the ground, 15 meters off the ground, racing their way south. And very shortly thereafter, there are 200 Israeli aircraft all racing towards Egypt. Israel left behind only 12 airplanes to guard the entire country. Every other plane that it had was racing towards Egypt, again, very, very low to avoid Egyptian radar. At that time of the morning, Israel intelligence knew all the pilots, all the mechanics, all the control tower people, everybody in the Egyptian Air Force was eating breakfast at exactly the same time. So they were fundamentally unprotected. And in wave after wave after wave of attack, because Israeli planes dropped their bombs, flew back, reloaded, dropped their bombs again, Israel destroyed hundreds of Egyptian aircraft, killed one-third of Egypt's pilots, destroyed 13 bases, and by 10.35 a.m., Yitzhak Rabin received a report. The Egyptian Air Force no longer exists. The war is really over three hours after it starts. It's going to go on for six days because Israel is going to capture additional territory from the Syrians when they attack and from the Jordanians when they attack, but it is a lightning victory. And by the end of the war, Israel go, is going to capture the Sinai Desert and Gaza from Egypt, the West Bank from Jordan, and the Golan Heights from the Syrians. Israel begs King Hussein not of Jordan, not to join, not to join the, uh, the, the fighting. And it tells him, Nasser is losing. Nasser doesn't even have an air force anymore. You're just gonna lose this land. But King Hussein understood that he was ruling a Palestinian majority as a Hashemite king who was a minority. And if he appeared not to be part of this pan-Arab movement, he was gonna be in grave personal danger. So he joins the war really knowing that he was gonna lose it, knowing that the soldiers that he sent to the front had a very high probability of dying, and knowing that he was probably going to lose some land in the interim. The entire war at the end of the day lasted 132 hours. 
Nasser of Egypt accepts a ceasefire after three days. From Egypt, as we said, sorry, from Jordan, as we said, Israel captures the West Bank and Jerusalem, the east part of Jerusalem. From Syria, it gets the Golan Heights. Just to give you an idea of the differential in losses, Israel lost about 700 soldiers in the six days of fighting. In the three days that Egypt was in the fighting, it lost somewhere between 10,000 and 15,000 soldiers. It was a complete rout, and, Egypt, and Israel had tripled its size. In six days, Israel defeats Syria, Jordan, and Egypt, and it triples its size. Israel, at one point, at one point in the map, had been very, very narrow, some 10 miles wide at some point, and now, of course, it has breathing room because of the West Bank, uh, and it feels all of a sudden secure in a way that it had never felt before. But the West Bank is obviously not empty of people. There are thousands of Palestinians who live in the West Bank. Now, there are Israeli voices debating, what do we do with this land? Most Israelis who had been terrified for week after week were, well, we won a war. They were gonna destroy us. They said so explicitly, we won the land. But there were already, even back then in 1967, Israeli voices who said, don't do that. Give the land back. Keep East Jerusalem because that's sacred to us. Maybe keep the Golan because it's of security importance and give everything else back. David Ben-Gurion, who had been prime minister, said that. And Yeshayahu Leibowitz, who was a kind of a cantankerous public intellectual in the Orthodox camp, in the religious camp, said, give it all back. Because controlling these civilians is going to callous Israel's soul. This war will become not a great victory, but a huge disaster for us. But of course, we can understand why those Israelis who thought that they shouldn't give it back thought that they shouldn't give it back. Right? First of all, now we're going to come back to that speech by Rabbi Cook. His students heard this, and the people who had heard about the speech, not only the ones who were there, now all of a sudden, he seemed like a prophet. Where is our Jericho, he asked? We had Jericho. Where is our Jerusalem, he asked? We had Jerusalem. Where is our Nablus, he asked? We had Nablus. He said, they divided my land. Now the land wasn't divided anymore. In a certain segment of Israeli society, this seems to be from God. Now, we can believe that or we cannot believe that, but it's critically important that at least we understand it. For the religious Zionists, the combination of Rabbi Cook's speech and the fact that Israel had been preparing for such horrible, devastating losses and exactly the opposite happened, this could only be a miracle. This was the sort of miracle that happened in the Bible, and God had intervened again. Now, God intervenes, and you're going to give the land back? And then people who were not in the religious camp also asked, wait a minute, but how was Israel built? Israel was always built by either buying the land in the period of the Yeshuv or capturing land in wars that we didn't want and keeping it. The whole center part of the Galilee, people said, that was captured in 1948-49. There were Arabs living there then. We know that. But nobody in the international community said, you have to give that land back. So why would we give this land back? We captured that in 47, 48, and 49, even though it was not empty of people. And we captured this in 67, even though it wasn't empty of people. Why is 49 okay to keep and 67 all of a sudden isn't okay to keep? And by the way, there's a lot of Israelis who ask that question to this very day. 
And what we've seen is that 1967, a couple of months in 1967, changed Israel forever because the new fervor of religious Zionists is born through a combination of Rabbi Cook's speech and the lightning victory in the Six-Day War. Israel will triple its size and feel very confident militarily, but from June 1967 until this very day, Israel is going to live with the burden of how to address what's called the occupation. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordas and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.